Okay, we're picking up in chapter 35. Hey, John. So, we got some interesting stuff coming up. And then, then it's going to start shifting. So, chapter 36 is where it uh, starts to, to change into a kind of a story narrative type thing and tell us all about the interaction of the, the kings and how they're making these alliances and all of that. So, we got one more chapter of looking at you know, what God has to say about the current condition, about how things are going. So, over the last couple chapters now, we've been seeing little evidences of the end for the remnant, for those who remain faithful, for those who, who repent and come back to the Lord. Then we saw some visions of heaven. We saw you know, what, what great things will happen and, and how God it comes to us to save us. I mean, that's been the message here for the, for, for the last couple chapters. And now chapter 35, I mean, this is, this is a good chapter. Wish I could all be like this, right? Just an incredible chapter of, of hope. Um, I mean, just, just, well, joy and hope, let's say. Or hope and joy, whichever you prefer. But it's, it's incredible to see, see this unfold because you know, we, we've seen continually for many chapters, no doubt, God is irritated and very upset with essentially everyone on earth. And God has pronounced great judgment upon all the earth. And yet, for the few, for the faithful, for the remnant, remember that we see so many times in Scripture, and Jesus even describes himself, you know, the path to God is narrow. Meaning there won't be that many people on it. The path away from God is really wide, right? Because many people are on that. So for the few, God is saying in this chapter that he is faithful to his word for any and all persons who simply come to him. God has said it and he will do it. So for all the people, and specifically here in chapter 35, it, 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 it lists persons in particular who are willing to walk away from their idols. So an idol is anything you, you put your trust in. So we've seen examples of people putting trust in, in an alliance with another country. We've seen other countries put their trust in their own military. We've seen other countries put the, the, their trust in, in wealth, land, and money. Uh, no matter what you're putting your trust in, if you're willing to leave that and come and trust in God, then chapter 35 is for you. So our whole discussion thus far has been focused on the issue of trusting in God, but you don't see the word trust in this chapter, do you? It's strangely absent. After 34 chapters of it you know, being the focus, I think we can apply it into this. I mean, this is the underlying principle. You don't have to say it again. It's already the foundation that has been established. So we can see clearly in this chapter the result of trusting God, and we can also see the result of rejecting God. And we keep seeing that. Both sides of it. Do this, you will be blessed. Do this, not so much. So the, the, the point is simply this. No matter how bad things get, repenting and returning to our trust in God will result in great power and grace that God will use then to reverse all evil in our lives. He will remove us from it in the end. So the first two verses gives us a great picture of what it looks like. It's painting a picture for us. Deserts will be turned into oasis. And there will be flourishing wilderness. Now, look, look at the end of verse 2 and see the reason why God is doing this. Why he is being faithful to the faithful. It's so that all will see the glory of the Lord. The splendor of our God. That's the purpose. So he's he's gonna he's talked about it, he's written it down, and now he's gonna show this is what you get if you return to me. So like one last ditch effort, one one final push to make it clear. And we we see that in Revelation as well. Uh, unfortunately, what we see in Revelation is that no one gets it. No one understands it. They actually become more belligerent and resistant to God. 
as God continues to reveal the, the, the truth. But that makes it ever so clear that this is your decision. It's not God making this decision. He has given you every option to choose the right way. But people continue to choose against God. Look at verses 3 and 4. <coughs> A prayer for the people. Now, asking God to bless the people even before they repent. Now, that's pretty powerful stuff. So for people that have lost hope, for, for these people that are being prayed for, for people that see that they've tried all their, their own means of trusting in the military, in alliances, in wealth and money, and they've tried all those evidence, they realize now that none of that works. That results in hopelessness. When everything I can conceive of doesn't work, that's the definition of hopelessness, isn't it? I, I have nowhere else to turn. I have no, nothing else to consider. And it is at that point then that God brings forth the visual. Yeah, I've told you about this. I've written it down for you, but you still don't get it. So let me show you what is possible. So for these people who are hopeless, look at verse 4. Can, can you imagine how it would be for a hopeless person to hear those words? Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. Isn't that the best thing you could possibly hear? God's coming. Just, just hang on. Again, hope. hope. Hope is defined as something you don't yet have. So here the promise is, just hang on. Shortly, God is coming. And God will rescue us, save us. Now if you look at the very end of verse 4, you see why God is doing all of this. The purpose that God would come is to save us. It's for the purpose of salvation. Now, does that not sound hopeful? Right? So God, in, in this sense, even though he said, you know, there's, there's been all this judgment and wrath and all these terrible things happening, he comes with a word of hope. And the hope is our salvation. But again, that's only for persons willing to, to repent and submit in our trust in God. So in this day and age, I don't know, it, it, is it me or does it seem to the rest of you there's an awful lot of evil out there? Is it, is it just me? Just the, just the new sources I'm getting? Okay, so you're, you're, you're all getting the same, same concept. Okay, so it, it seems like evil is winning, doesn't it? I mean, when you really look at it, it would very easily seem that way. But you see, go back to verse 4. Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. That's our hope. Even though it seems desperate now, we continue in our hope of God because we know that His Word is true. He will honor what He says He will do. God will come to rescue and save us. Do you think He was talking about Jesus coming there? Certainly, in in a very real sense, yes. So basically, from Jesus on, I mean, this is this is the 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 clear plan of God. You know, I mean, the name of Jesus means He saves. So yes. So in Jesus, you can see that clearly, and now all the more reason there is no excuse for not getting this. Again, God God made it abundantly clear in Jesus. Yes, good point. So hope is. The basis of faith. Faith is not seeing and yet believing, right? Hope is not having, but knowing I'm going to get it. See how it works? And that's what God wants us assured of. Now, when I say assured, I mean absolutely positively sure that this will happen exactly as God says it will. He's going to rescue and save us. Even though it sounds like evil is all around us and that evil is winning. Hang on. All this is coming soon. So verses 5, 6, and 7 then, the response of the people is, uh, when they hear this good news, their eyes and ears are opened and the lame leap with joy. And that seems to be a, a common reaction of people at getting great news 
you don't just say thank you and walk away. You, you start jumping and you're excited and you're yelling and screaming. And, and more importantly, you're telling others about this. This is such good news, you, you can't hold it in any longer. And now look, look at verse 8. I have a, a big theological question to ask you about verse 8. Because here it's describing the way to holiness. How can this road be the way to holiness? Now you have to think about what the purpose of a road is. And how can this road, this path, this way lead to holiness? Because Jesus is the way. Okay. And that leads to? Holiness. Accepting it. <laughs> so what... What is the definition of holiness? Being godlike. Being godlike, because the, the end of the road is God. God. God is holy, right? So this is the way that leads us to God. So he is the destination. Precisely. See, the purpose of a road is to get from point A to point B, right? To, to get somewhere. So God is the, the end. Heaven is the end. God is holy and brings us into that holiness. Now here's something really incredible. The original definition of Christians was not Christian. That wasn't the first name that they were called. The original name was the people of the way. The way to holiness. Yes. Is Jesus who will lead us then to, to salvation. I think it's pretty neat. So you get on a road to get somewhere. The question is, where's the destination? Where are you going? We're going to God, to holiness, the way to holiness. Now, we realize in our relationship with Jesus, God is holy, and Jesus tells us that it, we need to be holy as our Heavenly Father is holy. So again, with Jesus walking with us now on this way to holiness, he begins to impart holiness to us. Obviously, God, God is perfect holiness, but we need to be growing in our sense of holiness, of being like God. We only do that when we're on the way. Now, the, the end, end of the chapter d describes the persons who will be on this way. Those who walk on the way. And it says that the ones who walk on the way are those who have been redeemed. Those who have allowed Jesus to pay the price for our sins. Now we need to recognize that, that Satan has held us captive in sin, but Jesus paid the ransom for our lives and gives us our lives back. Therefore, go back to leaping for joy. That's our response. We have a great joy that results in, you can see there, in singing. Doesn't say you necessarily have to sing well. You're just going to break into song. Start singing your heart out, right? I mean, that's, is, is not singing an expression of joy? And believe it or not, you know, it says in Revelation, you know, the first thing we all do when we get there, we start singing. We just can't help ourselves. Now, I, I frankly think that I'm going to have trouble singing because I think my jaw is going to be on the floor and you know, I'm just not going to be able to make words. I'm gonna, it's going to be one of those things that are just going to be mind-boggling what, what we're going to witness when we get there. But you know, the natural response is just to start singing. It's just to start praising God. It's, it's going to be absolutely incredible. So the redeemed are the ones on the way. Now it's, it's also interesting that in this description we, we have revealed the bad things that will not be found on the way. So being in the way means that we get away from some bad stuff. So absent on the way are persons who are unclean. 
So we're not going to be walking side by side with, yeah, the faithful will not be walking side by side along with those, those who continue to reject God. There will be no fools. Remember we talked about that last week. You know, the definition of a fool is simply someone who rejects God. So again, same thing. Persons who reject God will not be on the road. And there will be no devouring animals to threaten you or attack you. So it's not like you're going to be walking in the way scared, you know, afraid that someone's going to jump out from behind the tree or something like that and attack you. You will have the absolute confidence in knowing that because Jesus is with you, you are protected. And you know, we read about that in the New Testament. You know, we, we put on the full armor of God. We have, have defensive protection and we have the offensive weapon of the sword of the Spirit. That's what we get by placing ourselves on the path, by choosing to trust in God, which then places us on the path. Now, this is hope because we don't have it yet. Again, it's something that we're sure that we're going to get, but we're not there yet. So God makes it clear what our ongoing faith will yield. So choosing today to begin that, that process, look what we get. We get joy for the journey, and then we get joy for all eternity. In other words, joy. So in, in, in a very real sense, choosing God results in bringing the beginning of heaven here on earth with us. Now, it's going to be way better when we get there, but we begin to bring some of the wonderful things of heaven into our lives today. And in particular, that's joy. So we don't wait to experience joy when we finally get to heaven. We are to begin to experience it now. Remember, joy is one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, too. So it, it, it comes to us by simply submitting our trust to God. So God wants us to understand these are the benefits of choosing him. But he also makes it clear, this is what you're going to get. This is the consequence of rejecting God. It's always both sides. He wants that abundantly clear for us. And there goes chapter 35. A chapter on hope. What other thoughts do you have in chapter 35? Well, let's look at 36. Now a story. Now you got to get the character straight. So the Assyrian king is Sennacherib. The Jewish king is Hezekiah. And Sennacherib sends this delegation to try to convince Hezekiah and the Jews to surrender. We're way more powerful than you, so you should just surrender. And it's we get to hear the interplay between them and how Hezekiah responds to this. Now, keep in mind, Hezekiah's father is who we started with back in chapter 1, King Ahaz, who made some really bad decisions and made some alliances and got completely wiped out. Now the next generation, Hezekiah, is posed with the exact same issues his father was. And what we see is he's at least smart enough to realize, well, this is what my dad did and it didn't work out well. I need to do something different. Now, you can find this same account historically described in 2 Kings 18 to 20. So you go back and read that. But what we see here is, is the conversation the Jews are having on whether to, to fulfill and complete an alliance with the Assyrians. But again, the question is always, do we put our trust in God or not? So in verse 2, the field commander, he, he gets a lot of airtime here, the Assyrian field commander. Now, in the Assyrian army, the field commander is, is the third-ranking officer. So you got the king, you got your general, then the field officer. So this is, this is number three, so pretty, pretty significant character. Now, here described is that all the walled cities of Israel have fallen. 
except for Jerusalem. And currently there is a siege on the city of Lachish. So it seems like Sennacherib and the army have placed a siege on Lachish and sent the field commander and a few others to Jerusalem. Knowing that they're going to win over Lachish before too long, then they're, they're paving the way to take over Jerusalem next. And they simply want to convince the Jews to surrender. Now, it's interesting that we have the exact location of where the field commander stood. And that really is not a necessary thing, you would think. But check back. This is the exact location Isaiah stood at the beginning of his prophecy, like back in chapter 2. And he told the Israelites, standing on that exact location, that this day of the Assyrians' coming would come. <laughs> so 30 years before, he stood in that exact same location, and here now the field commander stands on the exact same location <laughs> and says, well, and you think, so people are supposed to remember this. So it's, it's absolutely amazing. So the field commander's speech is basically saying that God sent the Assyrians to defeat Israel. And there are three good reasons why Israel should surrender. So again, this is, this is psychological warfare now. Haven't drawn a sword yet, but we're, this field commander is trying to break down Hezekiah and the Jewish leadership. So he has three, three good arguments. The first argument is the Assyrian army is way bigger than your army. So you don't stand a chance based on that. Secondly, the Lord is on the Assyrian side, not the Israel side. That doesn't sound right, does it? But they're trying to convince Israel that that's the case. And then thirdly, the field commander says that if you surrender now, we will just, just absorb you into the Assyrian Empire, make you one with us, and we're going to take really good care of you your life will be at least as good as it has been. Probably better. We're gonna give you good land. We're gonna you know, take care of you. We're gonna give you every, everything you need. So basically saying that, join the Assyrians and nothing will change for you. You don't have to give anything up. That doesn't make sense either. So the speech is designed to break down Hezekiah and, and the Jews' trust in God. And keep in mind, trust is always the main issue. So in, look at verse 6. There, there's a reference to, to the splintering reed. That's Egypt. So the field commander is saying, you know, you're thinking about making this alliance with, with Egypt. Don't, because... Again, our army is way bigger than them, and we're going to crush them too. So we'll, yeah, you know, all the reeds in the uh, in the uh, the Nile River, right? That's what what he's referring to there. So we're we're going to crush them as well. So don't don't side with them. So join us, and we're going to take good care of you. Then look at verse seven. Here in Isaiah, we, we've not been told directly of Hezekiah removing God's altars. But again, you can find that clearly in 2 Kings 18. And you can also find it in 2 Chronicles 29 and 31. So this is, this is the problem. Hezekiah is not at this point trusting God. He has removed the altars of God. He's already trying to placate the people and saying that, well, you know, God isn't doing much for us, so we need to bring some other idols in. We need to, you know, incorporate, you know, some of these other strong nations, their gods, and bring and bring them in. So he's already done that, and God is not pleased at all with Hezekiah at this point. But again, it's not not too late. Now, what the field commander is saying here in verse seven, he doesn't have his facts straight. He's making a case that God uses the Assyrians to defeat Israel because the Assyrians have already destroyed numerous holy places around Jerusalem. 
So they've already sent in a delegation to, you know, they haven't got through the wall yet, but they've taken a whole bunch of the, the, the holy places around Jerusalem. So basically, we, we've already began to diminish the power of your God. We've already taken away all these holy places. We've already shown our might and our ability to take out your God. In other words, our king is stronger than your God. So because of that, God now is on our side, the Assyrians are saying. So God couldn't stop us from destroying all those holy places over the past couple of weeks, and he's not going to stop us from destroying all of Jerusalem. So you might as well surrender. But the point the field commander is missing is that he's thinking that because these specific locations are destroyed, that God has been rendered powerless. Doesn't understand the nature of God, that God is everywhere, not just in these places. But again, that's a theological issue that the Jews are going to have to see through. Verse 8 is kind of fun. The field commander taunts the Jews. He says, I'll spot you 2,000 horses. <laughs> we are so mighty, I'll actually give you 2,000 horses. Because the field commander knows they, the Jews won't be able to find 2,000 soldiers to put on 2,000 horses. <laughs> That's how much more powerful the Assyrians are. So he's just making fun of them now. So look at the difference in your army against ours. Verses 11 and 12. The field commander had been speaking in Hebrew so that all the Jews assembled could understand what he's saying. All the logic, the taunts, everything. He wanted them all to hear. But as things are getting worse, the Jewish delegation asked the field commander to speak in Aramaic because most of the Jews could not understand Aramaic. Only a few educated people could understand Aramaic, a few of the, the leaders of this delegation. They didn't want the rest of them to hear all these terrible things and, and, and scare them so bad. And of course, the, uh, uh, the field commander says, no, I'm going to keep speaking in Hebrew. I want everybody to hear this. He wants to erode the morale of the Jews. He wants to panic the Jews. So that when they hear all the horrors of what the Assyrians will do to them if they do not surrender, they will just choose to surrender now. So it's, this is a real poker game going on here. Now, in a, the section of verses 14 to 20, you, you see revealed the, the, the true underlying issue, what, what all this is about. The Assyrians are challenging God. They are not challenging Hezekiah. This isn't king versus king. This is king versus God. And what, what Sennacherib and the field commander and, and the Assyrian army are saying is that Sennacherib is more powerful than the Lord God Almighty. That's what this warfare is all about. It's not king versus king. It is king versus God. Now, talk about arrogance. And again, why God brings them down in the end. Well, let me show you how powerful I am. Right? I mean, it just becomes abundantly clear. But you see, what God does is he allows a chipping away. God allows the Assyrians to destroy all, all, all the altars around, uh, around uh, Jerusalem. He, he allows these things to happen to an extent. And then, boom, comes in and makes himself abundantly clear. Verse 14. The field commander declares that Hezekiah cannot save his people because the Lord is not on his side. So again, a chipping away, just, just you know, trying to you know, lower the, the morale of the people. Verse 16. The field commander now asks the Jews directly. Again, he's speaking Hebrew to them. He's asking the Jews to trust the Assyrian king. And if they do so, 
the siege will be lifted and they will return to their normal lives. Now, he does make it clear that, as they always did back in this day, they would, they would take you from your, your current country and take you to the other country. Remember that happened to Daniel and uh, man, all the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they, they take all, all the people from the defeated country to their homeland and then put a bunch of the Assyrians in, in Israel. But we promise you we'll give you land at least as good as what you have now. We'll, we'll take really, really good care of you. So all that is, it, it is made clear at that point. But, again, you've got to stop trusting God, stop trusting your king, because neither God nor king can save you at this point. I, I just can't stress this enough. This is a battle between Sennacherib and the Lord God Almighty. A man versus the one true God. Verse 18. Good verse. Hezekiah responds with, the Lord will deliver us. So, no signs of faith previous, but now, with all this made clear, Hezekiah steps up. And the field commander responds with recalling how every other nation's gods have fallen. So why would the God of Israel be any different? See, that's the Assyrian logic. We have defeated all these other nations. All their other gods have fallen before us. Why do you think with your weak military, and we've already chipped away at your God, why you would think you, you stand a chance at winning any battle against us? Verse 21. Hezekiah again steps up. He instructs his officers to give no response to this challenge of God. Knowing this is a, a psychological warfare, it does no good to enter into that argument. Don't get drawn into it, but instead do something decisive. So Hezekiah pulls every, all the Jews back. All right, let's get back into Jerusalem and let's, let's decide what we're going to do. But it does no good to, to have this, this verbal war going on outside. You, you're making fun of our God. All right. We're going to trust in God, and God will show you what he's all about. Not me. God will show you himself. And there's chapter 26. What else did you see in there? What, where, where did I lose you? Well, the reason why they tear their clothes before they go back. It's, it, it is a sign of uh, great distress, anguish, um, uh, all, that, that's always done in response to uh, a relationship with God. That you, know, you tear your clothes to demonstrate my relationship with God has been torn, has been broken, and that. So typically the process is, and we're going we're to see that is you, you tear your clothes and then you take your clothes off and replace them with sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes. So my relationship with God has been torn but I will repent, put on sackcloth and ashes, and demonstrate then with my clothing that I have repented and returned to the Lord. Um, so yeah, that's what you see in the first verse of chapter 37. He tears his clothes, then he puts on uh, sackcloth and ashes. So you know, that's, that's the Jewish response. So it, it, It's very visual. You don't just talk about it, you actually show people that this is what... What my personal response is. I can't make you do it, but this is what I will do in response to all this terror, all this awfulness, all these terrible things happening. I will repent and return to the Lord. I will be part of the remnant. If I can't get the rest of you to do it, at least I will take care of it myself. Back in verse 2 where it talks about uh, the king camping along the upper pool past the field where cloth is bleached. Does that literally mean... What does that mean with cloth is bleached? Is that what it says? Is the layout of the cloth? The, the first two? I, I, I don't see the cloth. Well, this is the, the uh, Living Bible. Maybe. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. The, li the Living Bible is a paraphrase. Yeah, he can't run the outlet of the upper pool along the road going past the field where cloth is bleached. I, I have the washerman's field, okay. which is 
Well, they did laundry. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's yeah, just a, a strange way to, to to describe that. Yeah. That's the. Yeah, but so what, what you have there is, is a paraphrase that somebody read the Bible and then you know, kind of add some things to, to, to make it easier to read and to understand. But yeah, that's, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for that. Wait a minute. <laughs> that explains it, doesn't it? Yes. So, yes, interesting. Other thoughts of chapter 36? What seems to me like uh, it's just warning people to beware of being deceived by false gods or people that you know, talk of God that they're not talking of God. Right. Well, remember last week in our conversation with the fool, a fool is simply defined as somebody who rejects God and then takes it to the point of, how was that worded? Um, uh, uh, sharing errors about God, misleading, deliberately misleading people, false prophets. False teachers. Uh, Jesus says that there will be wolves in sheep's clothing, right? That you look at them and initially you think they're really good, but you know, when you really listen to what they're saying, you realize, whoops, that's not good, right? There's, there's something evil behind that, something diabolical, something of a scoundrel behind that that is trying to manipulate something into what they want it to be as opposed to what, what God wants it to be. Um, but that's, that's what a fool does. So yes. You, know, you start by rejecting God, but you're, you're not satisfied with just keeping that to yourself. You try and lead others to do that. And as we've seen all along, if we allow ourselves to, to, to get suckered into false teaching, then we're, we're as guilty as the sucker and the sucky or both <laughs> are, are, are received the same penalty. That'd be a great sermon title, wouldn't it? Uh, <laughs> uh, um, but that's that's just it because we we're supposed to be smarter than that. We're, yeah, we have the Holy Spirit in us, and you know, we we have all the preventative tools available to us to keep that from happening. So if we, if we're weak enough to allow that to happen, then the, the the justice of God is well, you get the same thing the other person gets. And again, there's there's no there's not a worse hell for the person who who leads people astray than those who are led astray. It's the same consequence for for all. So yes, we have to be have to be a little smarter. And Hezekiah at this point is, finally. Apparently earlier on he 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 did allow the culture to you know lead him away from God, but now he's willing to stand firm and if nobody else, at least I will I will do this. Because I, I can see through what these guys are trying to do. It, it just doesn't ring, ring true to him. When, when you say that, that God's on the side of the Assyrians, what does that mean? That we're no longer God's people? I mean, God changed his mind? God doesn't change his mind. So, I mean, yeah, when you start thinking theologically, it's, it, yeah, hearing that, that's, yeah, sure, your army's bigger than mine, but you know, God is not on your side and against us. We are still his people. So that, right off the bat, should lead to, wait a minute, so if that's wrong, then everything else you're, you're trying to propose must be wrong as well. You're you're, you're, you're falsely uh, teaching in that sense. So um, I'm not going to believe it. I will go absolutely against what, 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 what you're recommending. Yeah, that's a very good point. Anything else in 36? Well, let's try 37. Because Hezekiah now finally is a good leader. And he uses himself as a teaching tool. So rather than tell people, you, you should you know, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth, he just does it himself. He models what he wants the people to do. So as dire a situation as this is, you tear your clothing and then you put on sackcloth as a sign of submission to God. Now, it's a, it's a sign of submission because you know, sackcloth and burlap. If you wore clothing made of burlap, just everywhere it touches is abrasive. It just, it, it, it just, it, it's not comfortable at all. It's not cotton, <laughs> all right? It's, it's really, really, just every time you breathe, right, you, you know, your chest moves underneath that. Every time you breathe, it, 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 so it reminds you to, Whatever you do, with every breath, I must come to God. So it's a, it, it, it's a physical reminder of what we need to be doing spiritually. 
So that's what that, that, that symbol means. Now, if you're, if you're really, really repenting, then sackcloth and ashes. So ashes, when you burn wood, creates very, very fine little shards of glass-like substance in there, little sharp things. If you rub, rub your finger of it, it'll make little wee cuts. And so if you put this abrasive material on and then go out to your fire and grab a handful of that and throw that up in the air, all that stuff comes down and gets in every pore of your body, and it, the effect is the same. So wherever sackcloth isn't touching, you know, if I, it's all over my neck. Every time I turn my neck, I get the, you just feel it, just the, the little little cuts. It's nothing really that painful, but it, it makes you aware that I can't do anything without God. I can't even breathe without God. So that, for, for the Jews, that, that was the ultimate sign of repentance. It's a sign of, of mourning. You know, something has been lost. We, we lost our relationship with God. But now we will repent and come back to God. We've got to trust God and God alone. Now, need to keep in mind that Hezekiah, we see this clearly in 2 Kings, Hezekiah has already tried to pay off the Assyrians. You, you know, it's not here, but you know, he's, he's already done that. So again, prior to this, this moment where we are now, where he finally comes back to faith, he, he, he used the means of, you know, I'll give you all my money, you know, whatever tons of gold, um, I will give you that if you just leave us alone. And the Assyrians responded, no, because we're going to defeat you, and then we're going to get it all anyway. <laughs> right? And then we get your land. So, uh, no, we're not going to do that. So Hezekiah has already tried every means possible. Now, harken back to chapter 35, a great chapter of hope. Right? After you've tried every means possible, you've not considered God up to that point, but now... Finally, a wise person would say, I have nothing else. Now I will come back to God. That's what Hezekiah is doing. He tried everything else. But now he's all in with God. He tore his clothes and he's wearing sackcloth. Look at verse 2. Not only does Hezekiah repent, he also sends a delegation to Isaiah to consult with the prophet as to what they should do. Now that's a really smart move. You know, Hezekiah is smart to realize that, you know, I'm just, I'm new to this. You know, I've been really bad before. You know, I haven't, I haven't been trusting in God. I need to consult with a guy who has been trusting God for the past 35 years. And the guy I want on my side is Isaiah. He said a lot of terrible things about me, but <laughs> I now realize he's the guy who, who, who knows what God wants. So rather than me decide... From a human standpoint, I want to hear what God has to say about this. And so they conclude that, in fact, Israel will fall to the Assyrians unless God does some miraculous intervention. So in consulting with Isaiah, all these great minds together, we don't stand a chance. There's nothing physically, humanly, we can do. All we can do is get out of the way and let God do whatever God's going to do. In other words, put our complete and total trust in God. But, see, we've seen that so many times in Scripture. That's the perfect place to be. That's the best place to be. When we have nothing else that we can count on, when we come to God, He's right there ready. Much like the prodigal son. I have nothing. Slaves back in my father's house eat better than I do. <laughs> right? He's eating pig food. Right? So I will realize I have sinned. I will repent and I will come back. And the father runs out and greets him. That's what God does with us. Verse 3. Hezekiah and Israel, it's described here, are, are like a mother who's been in labor so long that when it actually comes to delivering the child, there is no strength left to push the child out. 
<clears throat> See, Hezekiah has truly exhausted every human means of defending the country. And now finally, he's ready to try God. <laughs> Again, no other resource is possible. Let's come to God. Verse 6. God responds through Isaiah and declares that the, the Assyrians, these underlings, God calls them, will be punished. God certainly knows that the Assyrians are trying to discredit God. So look what God does. He will place a spirit of confusion in Sennacherib. And he will make some bad military decisions. And then he will die by the sword. That's what God's going to do. So basically saying, okay, Hezekiah, he did wrong. You've repented. You're willing to come to me and do whatever I say. Thank you. Now I will do my thing. You've opened up the way for me to do my thing. So Hezekiah, you don't have to do anything. So I will make Sennacherib make some really bad military decisions and then he's going to die by the sword. And that will show who's, who's the greater. It's not you, Hezekiah. It's the Lord God Almighty. So verses 8 to 13, you know, Sennacherib sends a letter to Hezekiah basically saying that he should not trust the one true God. Because the Assyrians have defeated all the other enemies and believe the same will happen with Israel and their God. And indeed, the Assyrians have a great track, track history. But you have to ask yourself why the Assyrians were able to defeat these other nations, and in particular these other gods. The easy answer is because the other gods are not real. <laughs> right? They're images of stone and wood, it says. So that's easy to defeat. <laughs> I can pick up a, a wooden statue and, and throw it into the fire. I mean, it's, yeah, wow. It's, you know, it doesn't take great strength to do that, great military strength. You can just pick it up and do it. But you see, that's what Sennacherib is missing. He thinks that all gods are the same. When in fact, there's only the one true God and all these others are just human creations much like the golden calf. We threw all this gold in the fire and look what came out. <laughs> I guess people will believe anything you tell them. Now, just to make it even more clear, to put more fear into Hezekiah, Sennacherib writes that, all right, we've, we've offered you good stuff, We've, we've given you the, the, the option to realize that your God is already done and we're going to come in and wipe you out. If you surrender now, we'll give you good land. We'll take really good care of you. But if you continue to refuse, when we do defeat you, Hezekiah, we will not kill you. What we will do is we will get you, we will string you up, and we will skin you alive. So your, your death, you're choosing to refuse to surrender. We will make an example out of you and give you the worst possible death you can imagine. So really trying to scare Hezekiah into, okay, I better do what they say. The message is clear. Hezekiah, don't trust in God because Sennacherib is mightier than God. Now verses 14 to 17. Upon getting this letter, Hezekiah, little little hesitation here, little 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 stutter step, um, but look what he does. He doesn't go to Isaiah this time. Watch this. Hezekiah goes directly to God. Whoa! <laughs> Didn't see that coming, did you? Right. So a weak king, a king that couldn't seem to make up his mind, couldn't, couldn't figure out what what direction on how to to protect the nation is now smart enough to realize I don't need, need Isaiah at this point. I can go directly to God and have, have a conversation with God and ask God himself what 
I need to do. So Hezekiah goes to the temple and tells God what Sennacherib said, as if God didn't already know. So Hezekiah pleads with God to not let this insult go unpunished. In other words, God, Sennacherib is really, really challenging you and really insulting you. God, this would be a good time for you to do something about it. <laughs> and so he, Hezekiah does that in the form of a prayer in verses 18 to 20. And what a great prayer that is. Because indeed, the only reason Sennacherib was able to defeat all the other nations is because all the other gods are useless. They're, they're, they're just stone and wood. But Hezekiah says, you, O God, are the one true God. But notice what this prayer says. The, the prayer is not pleading for God to save the nation. you think that would be the prayer, wouldn't you? The king of the nation would be pleading, God save this nation. That's not what he does. All Hezekiah asks is that God would vindicate his holy name. In other words, God, make your power known so that everyone will know that you are the one true God. What happens to Israel is, is, is inconsequential at this point. I just want your name to be kept holy. See, the, the core issue is this. Is God just another God among the many gods? Among those that Sennacherib has already destroyed? Or is God really God? That's what all this is all about. Furthermore, the, the argument then comes, well, if, if the belief is that God is the God among many gods, then it must be possible then for a human being to elevate to the level of a god. And therefore, I can defeat other gods. That's Sennacherib's mindset. I am so great. I am greater than all these gods. And I can defeat all of them. So Hezekiah's prayer is that God would destroy the Assyrians. So look, look at verse 20. The conclusion of this prayer. So Hezekiah prays for, for God to destroy the Assyrians, quote, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Again, not to preserve Israel, just so that everyone knows that you are the one true God. That's a really good prayer. That's a, a non-selfish, uh, very open prayer. Hezekiah now realizes his role in all of this. So that's the prayer. God's response, a pretty long response. Verses 21 to 38. <laughs> And it, basically, God, God breaks this in, into three components of what he will do in response to Hezekiah's prayer. First, God directly responds to Sennacherib. Then God directly responds to Hezekiah. And then God speaks of what is going to happen to Sennacherib. So basically, God does answer this prayer and makes it abundantly clear what's going to happen. So in verse, verse 21, Isaiah tell, tells Hezekiah, speaking for God, quote, because of your prayer, this is what God will do. Now that's a, a really quick affirmation, is it not? I prayed a prayer, and this is what happened. doesn't always happen that way. Oftentimes prayer is, takes days, months, weeks, maybe years before a response is, is given. But God always responds with either yes, no, or not yet. Seems that a lot of times the answer is not yet. <laughs> Which is kind of frustrating to us. Because we want it yesterday. But this is what God does. But in this case, an almost immediate response. But Isaiah is clear. God has been waiting for you to pray this prayer. God has been waiting for you, Hezekiah, to finally realize you need to come to him and trust. 
And because you're willing to do that, and because the prayer you prayed is is representative of your, your newfound faith, this is what God is going to do. The prayer is only possible because Hezekiah has already repented. You can't pray that kind of a prayer unless you've already repented. And that's what God is responding to. Verses 22-25. God speaking here and basically says that since Sennacherib has insulted God, Sennacherib hasn't insulted Israel, he's insulted God. And since Sennacherib refuses to trust in God and believe that the Assyrian military strength is all he needs to trust in, if you go to verse 33, God will not allow anything to happen to Jerusalem. God's going to step in and, yeah, here's a guy who's not going to do anything. Again, this will be the, the direct intervention of God. But that's the end of the story. Verses 26 to 29. God continues to identify the, the Assyrians because he really knows them well. In verse 27, God declares that thus far he has used the Assyrians to do his will. So in a sense, the field commander was right, saying that you know, God is on our side and God is using us. Where are you? 27. Verse 27. Verse 27? Yes. Of? Verse chapter 37. Okay. Am I not? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Somewhere in there. So, verse 29 then. Look at the quote. God knows they rage against me and because of your insolence, that has reached my ears. So this, this defiance, this arrogance, this, this incredible arrogance of Sennacherib. God says, yeah, I'm well aware of that. And I'm just letting this play out for a little bit. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of it. And he says that I will bring them down. Now, this, this is the consistent story we've read since day one. Rejecting God results in God's wrath. And judgment. He'll give you time to repent, but then there'll come a time when there is no more time, and then boom, the hammer is dropped. Verses 30 to 32 kind of has a double meaning. It says, you know, it gives a time frame that over the next three years, food will be uh, plentiful. Um, but it's going to take three years, which makes sense because with the Assyrians still around uh, they've destroyed everything so it's going to be they, they won't be able to get planting done the first year they'll get planting done at the end of the second year but it won't be until the third year till the harvest comes so a, a three year process so physically yes it's going to take that long but there's also a spiritual meaning in that this remnant must continue to grow and then it will produce a huge harvest. So Hezekiah, your, your faith, the faith of, of just one, will lead so many others to an incredible harvest in the end. Verses 33 and 34. Simple point. God is the one who defends Jerusalem and will save it. Not Hezekiah. It is God. God will take care of all of it. And Hezekiah seems just fine with it. There's no question in his mind that God will in fact do that. And then finally, verse 36. God is true to his word. He said he would make it clear that he was the one who, would, who brought the wrath upon the Assyrians and he wouldn't even need Israel to do anything. And look what happens. That night, the angel of death came over the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 soldiers. Well, that put a little hurt on the Assyrian army, didn't it? 
So with the army decimated, Sennacherib calls the army back to the homeland. And Sennacherib goes to pray to his God, I think basically saying, what happened? I thought I was more powerful than this, this Jewish God. And while he is in the temple praying to his God, his two sons come in and kill him by the sword. Gee, didn't God say that a while back? Hmm. It's just as God said would happen. And then some guy named Esarhaddon becomes the new Assyrian king. So the sons know that they can't be king, but they took it upon themselves to kill their father. And they run away. So now we have a new Assyrian king with a really wiped out army. But again, Hezekiah did nothing. Hezekiah slept all night. <laughs> I woke up the next day and read, read the paper. 185,000 Assyrian soldiers killed. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, just what, a, what an ocean of bodies would have been left behind. I mean, 185,000. That's, that's incredible. That's just unbelievable. But all that is a result of one person's prayer. One person's submission, one person's repentance. One person's trust in God. And, and the Syrians, did they ever recognize what, what had happened all this? No. no. They never said, oh, well, they said, said God would take care of this, and God did. They didn't never, yep. never reach that. Written proof and everything, but uh, uh, remember a couple years ago we, we, we studied uh, Samuel and uh, uh, the Philistines remember, yeah, uh, captured the ark and put, put it in, in front of the, their god, Dagon, and that night then you know, God knocked the statue over, <laughs> then the next night they cut off the arms and knocked the statue over and everything, and they finally realized, they said, well, we better give this back, but yeah, the Assyrians know where, that's how arrogant they are. And then eventually they're they're defeated by the Babylonians. You know they they just they lost you know half their army here at this point. So uh, they're kind of sitting ducks, and the, the Babylonians now get their troops together and, and come in before too terribly long and uh, take over the the Assyrians and make the empire even bigger. And again, try to um, so at, attack at Israel. End, at the end of verse thirty-eight, it says, "And Assur had his son succeeded him as king." So is that referring? It says Esarhaddon, his son. So is that Hezekiah's son? No, uh, no uh, not, Sennacherib's. Not, yeah, not Hezekiah, but uh, yeah. these names are hard to keep. The, the Syrian kings. Yes. Yes. Okay. So you have three sons. Yes. Oh, yeah. They. That's that's what these kings. Yeah, they, they had harems and everything, and had sons all. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Two ran away, and so I got lots more. So we'll make this guy and. And that could have been coordinated. Maybe, you know, this, this guy who's now king worked it out with the other two. You guys take the hit on this and run away, and then I'll be the king. Yeah, that, I mean, it could have been a, a, a coup in that sense that uh, that's what they wanted to do. But, you know, I, it, it would seem as though the son saw this incredible defeat that you can't explain as a sign of weakness of their father. Therefore, he can't be king anymore, and they, 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 they took him out. So, makes sense to me. But, uh, Little did they know they were just fulfilling. Yes, exactly. The promise that was made. They just walked right into God's plan and then didn't even realize it. Yep. Amazing. Well, what else do you see in uh, chapter 37? <coughs> never, never underestimate God. Never, ever <laughs> underestimate God. In essence, they did. Yep. But we, we can say the same thing of God's own people, the Jews. After all the miracles they saw coming out, and, you know, Moses leaves them for a couple of days, and well, Moses is gone, God's gone, let's make a gold calf. I mean, I, apparently that's human nature. I mean, we really need to hit between the eyes with the two before before we get this. I, 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 it doesn't make sense to me. I think we're, <laughs> at least some of us are a little smarter than that, but uh, apparently there's a lot of people that are just incredibly hard-hearted and stubborn. They just, just will not get it, will not get it, will not get it. 
But again, showing the patience of God, continue to give chance after chance after chance for, for people to get it. Just to make it clear that you had every opportunity possible and you rejected it. Therefore, this is the consequence of your actions. Anything else there at 37? We'll get into 38 next week, and Hezekiah is going to get sick and probably get the flu like everybody else. And there's a lot of sick people out there. My gosh, this is terrible. Oh, yeah, yeah.